Today, at the end of this service, we're going to have communion. I want you to set your mind and heart on it. I, uh, I have been asked, uh, just how long are you going to stay in the book of Revelation? Listen, if I've been in this, if I've been in it too long, I ask your forgiveness. I'm going to try to ramp it up a little bit. I, I, I'm just trying to, to be obedient to the Lord, but sometimes I get stuck, and, and I, I need a prod, you know, like you do with a cattle. I need one of those, so don't be afraid to prod me every once in a while and, and, and get me going, but I, I don't want to miss... Um, represent anything what our Lord does, but also I don't want to make it so it's becoming almost ho-hummish. Here we are in the same old, same old. As a matter of fact, we're going to take a look at the two witnesses again in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Would you please turn there with me and read with me, please, from verses 7 to verse 14. And what we want to look at is primarily these two witnesses, and there is a purpose, and it has to do with communion. The communion that we are going to have at the end of this service, I think, will speak very clearly through the message that our Lord is going to give us through these two wonderful men, whomever they are. We don't know their names, but we're going to kind of zero in and see what is it about them that makes them so unique. And I believe they are unique, and I believe that we have the same uniqueness flowing through our veins, those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want, to, I want you to read with me, please, verses 7 through 14 of chapter 11. In verse 7 it says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the people and the tribe and the tongues and the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after three and one half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the clouds, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell, and seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Father in heaven, please guide us. Please, Father, make sense of this. Where I fall short, I beg of you, Father, would you complete the work that you have me to do? Would you make sense of these words? Would you bring about the most clear meaning of possible of what is going on within this time, the great tribulation, that, that we might learn and, and, and be encouraged by it, Father, even though it is the most terrible of times. That we can encourage one another to reach out and try to touch people with the love of Christ. And we might live the life that you've called us to live so that we would be obedient to everything about you. And so, Lord, would you please open up our eyes and our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And would you move me aside, please, Father. Let me not hinder what you do in the life of, of the, the Bibles that we study, in the life of the words that we read, in the life of the, 
very essence of who you are. May I not stand in your way to minister to each of us. Please, Father, I beg of you that. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. As verse 7 reminded us, and as we spoke last week, when they, the two witnesses, had finished, that is key, they finished their testimony. Once they finished the testimony, it says, the beast then that comes up out of the abyss is going to make war with them. He's going to overcome them, it says in verse 7, and he will ultimately kill them. And you needed to see it, like we mentioned last week, when they finished their testimony, when they finished their ministry, then and then only will the Lord allow something to happen to them. But not one second before they are through, or not one second afterwards, not until He, God, is finished with the work that He has called them to. And as I reasoned with you last week, the same is true with your life and my life. Our God will not abandon us. He will see us through the work that he has called for us to do. There's really only one person that can stop you, and that's yourself. By either sin or, or, or just not desiring to do what God has called you to do. And I'm not sure what that is in your life, but I want you to feel as though you can hold on to the wonderful truth that God will not see anything happen to you until he is finished with your work. And then we asked last week, who are these two witnesses? And we noted that from the Greek word, the word witness is the word we get martyr. Well, today we're going to see that that comes true. As verse 7 explained to us, the beast that came up out of the abyss made war with these two witnesses, and he overcame them and killed them. By the way, this is the first of the 36 references in the book of Revelation concerning the beast. We're going to receive more information about him in chapters 13 and 17. But this we do know. Satan, in chapter 12, verses 3 and 9, is depicted as a dragon. This beast, therefore, is not Satan. No, no, we are told in chapter 13, as we learn more about this one called the beast, he is someone who becomes a world ruler who is called the Antichrist. He imitates Jesus Christ and demands that the world worships him. Now the world at that time is during the Great Tribulation, and the world are those who dwell upon it. And what we know from chapter 6 and other places is those who dwell upon the earth at that time are unbelievers. And so he is calling for them to worship him as God and to be obedient to everything and all that he wants. Now John writes about these two witnesses in verse 4. And we, we saw last week, we, we don't know their names. Now, there are commentators that, that think, well, it's Elijah. They, they think because Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, and the Bible says it is, it is reckoned to man once to die, and then comes judgment. And they think that, well, that he hasn't died, so he has to come back to earth and die, and, and then comes judgment. So many, many think it's Elijah. Some think it's John the Baptist. Others say it's Moses, and on and on and on. But we don't know. But what we do know about him about these two I want to sh share with you and it's in the book of Zechariah now that book is 
If you go to the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, if you turn to the left of Matthew, it's Malachi and then Zechariah. So it's just two books to the left of the New Testament. Look at the fourth chapter. John says that these two witnesses in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, verse 4, are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, this description of them is found in Zechariah chapter 4. Now note, in verse 1, it says, The angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see a lampstand, all of gold, with, it, with its bowl on the top of it, and it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Now that doesn't tell us much, but in verse 3 we see, and I also see, he says in verse 3, two olive trees. Okay, that we need to know. One of them is on the right side of the bowl, the other is on the left side of the bowl. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No. No, my Lord. Now note verse 6, because it is extremely important to who these two men are. It says in verse 6, He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You need to understand verse 6, and you might want to underline it in your Bible. The only way that you and I stand is not by our own power, not by our own might, but by the Spirit of God who lives and reigns within us. Jump to verse 11 of, uh, of uh, Zechariah chapter 4. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So, in verse 13, he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said to him, No. No, my Lord, I don't. And then he says in verse 14, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. That, when we jump back to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 4, starts to make sense. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And like it says in Zechariah chapter 4, we and they stand before our Lord not by our power, nor by our might, but by His Spirit. And that is the only way that you and I can stand. So I want you to hold that in your heart But when we go through to communion. I want you to think about what it is that's troubling you. What is it that, that has you kind of in a, a place where you don't know what to do? I want you to know that you're not going to be able to fight it off by your power or by your might, but by His Spirit. Thus saith the Lord. Hold that to your heart. Understand what is meant there. So these two witnesses, we don't know their names, but we know what they do. And what they do is they work with not their power and not their might, 
but by and through the Holy Spirit. So what we have learned, back to chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, in verse 7 we learned that they were killed. Now in verse 8 we find that their dead bodies are going to be laid in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt. But we also know where it is. That is where the Lord Jesus Christ had been crucified. In other words, they are doing their ministry mostly in Jerusalem during this time. The 144,000 Jews are all over the world. For the most part, these two witnesses will be doing their ministry in Jerusalem. At least that is where they are when they get killed. And the people in that area are very... They hate them. They're, they're upset with them beyond measure. They want them killed. This great city called Jerusalem is is called also Sodom and Egypt due to its wickedness. Tragically, the city of Jerusalem that once was God's holy city is going to be so overrun with evil that it'll be like a, the wicked cities of Sodom and Egypt. Places that were known for their hatred towards God, their hatred towards His Word. That the two witnesses will be killed in this city makes the identification of Jerusalem clear. This is where they are. It also suggests that Jerusalem is the focal point of their preaching. It marks Jerusalem as the seat of where the Antichrist will rule. Now we know that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, meaning the end times, it's going to come, it will not come, he says, unless the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction. Verse 4 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he will take his seat in the temple of God. In other words, in Jerusalem, displaying himself as being God, worshipped as God. Verses 9 and 10 now allow us to see in chapter 11 the hatred of these two witnesses. It's all-inclusive. Note what it says in verse 9. It says, People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are going to look upon their dead bodies for three and one-half days. They're not going to permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those, verse 10, who dwell on the earth, in other words, the unbelievers, are going to rejoice over them. They're going to make merry. They're going to send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Tormented them? How did they torment them? They tormented them by by telling them the truth of who God is. They tormented them by telling them, you need to repent. You need to, you need to deal with your sin and come to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. That's how they tormented the people. And so they see the hatred of them. Now it's really interesting. This is possible today. It says that, that it indicates that people all over the earth are going to look at their dead bodies can you imagine preachers some hundred years ago trying to make sense of this verse? I mean, how do they say people all over the earth are going to see them? What, are they going to make a, a journey? Are they going to see them, but they're only there for three and a half days? How is this going to happen? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost really comical the way things have changed on this earth in which we live. 
I don't know how long ago Dr. J. Vernon McGee wrote his, wrote his commentary concerning these two verses. But here's what he wrote about this. Listen to this. Dr. McGee writes, By that time, talking about verse 10, they may well have some new gadget which will make television as we know it look very much antiquated and out of place. <laughs> of course. Well, right now we've got phones. We've got phones that we can carry around and see things happening all over the world. Right in our hands, all day long, we can see what's happening in the world. And people will be able to see that quickly, these two dead bodies laying in the streets. And by the way, having their bodies lay in the street is a disrespectfully, uh, uh, just disrespects them to the max. In the ancient world, let me share why, exposing an enemy's dead body was the ultimate way of dishonoring him. God, as a matter of fact, forbid the Israelites to engage in any kind of practice like that. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, here's what God says. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and if he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. You shall surely bury him on that same day so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord God has given you as an inheritance. Why, even Jesus Christ, when he died, Pilate allowed his friends to take him off the cross and bury him, respectfully bury him. Well, not here. These dead bodies will be left to lie disrespectfully in the streets for three and one-half days. Now, I want you to note something very, very interesting here. It's in verse 10. In verse 10 it says, Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. I want you to note something here. Ironically, the only mention in the whole book of Revelation of rejoicing is in this verse. Believers, those who dwell on the earth, will be happy. They will rejoice because those who declared to them the word of God and to repent from their sins, were put to death. And so they rejoice. When I got to that place in my study, I, I, I just came to a halt. I stopped. I just stopped. I thought, the only place the commentator said that, that it was mention of rejoicing in the whole book of Revelation is here, and it is because these two witnesses of God, these two men, who shared the gospel of good news to people who tried to save them from the very pit of hell. These people rejoiced because they were dead. And I started to think in my office. I started thinking, now this is my thoughts and you can listen in, please. This is not out of scripture. It's just some thoughts that I had randomly while I was sitting in my office. I ask myself, what makes me happy? Where do I find my joy? Where do I rejoice? I can tell you a number of places. Most of it's centered around my family. I mean, when I get a call from my son, I find I automatically have a smile on my face. We just laugh and talk about the most wonderful things. I just love that. It's a time of joy in my life. But where else do you find your joy? Where else do I rejoice? Is it here at church where we give to some great missionary cause? Is it seeing our, our church flourish? 
Is it knowing that sin has been rooted from its place within my life and so that I could stand without sin before my Lord to the best of my ability? Is it hearing God's word preached faithfully? Does that bring joy? Do you rejoice over that or have those thoughts ever crossed your mind? Rather, is your joy revealed by hearing a good old joke or getting together with friends to quote-unquote party or maybe seeing a movie that has moments of uh, promiscuity in it? What will keep you from church? What will keep you from the real joy of ministry? Is it friends? Football? I had someone tell me the other day that I'm not going to church regularly right now. I don't think anything of it, but their, their football games have kind of gotten in the way. Really? And have you ever heard of TiVo? Vacation sites? Kids in sports? Rest? Just sleep. Just want to sleep in on a Sunday. Is it the same old preacher giving the same old message? When's the last time you rejoiced beyond words because we of the church here have funds to finally do the work that God has called us to do? When is the last time you've rejoiced over a, a, new, a new soul has come to Jesus Christ and accepted, accepted Him as their Lord and Savior and you just, you just rejoice overwhelmed? Have you rejoiced over the fact that, that maybe somehow, some way, we, we'd be able to purchase our, our building and, and have church? Or, or do you even know, do you even know that we are trying to figure out here at this church how to make ends meet financially so that we can serve you week in and week out? What makes you rejoice? It's just my thoughts, that's all. In verse 11 of chapter 11, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. I mean, can you even imagine that? Can you even imagine that? That all of a sudden, three and one half days later, these two guys stand on their feet. And a great fear, it says in verse 11, fell upon those who were watching them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to these two witnesses, Come up here. And they went up into heaven, it says, in a cloud as the enemies watched them. The scriptural word for resurrection is used here. The Greek word, H-I-S-T-E-M-E, -E, could be translated, they stood on their feet or they come up here. Revelation 26 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. That resurrection is for you and for me, where death has no power over us. The partying, the gift-giving, the rejoicing over these two witnesses now is halted. It stopped dead in its track by this most shocking event as both of them rise up into heaven in a cloud. After three and a half days during which their bodies laid 
dead, in disgrace, in the streets of Jerusalem. Then the breath of life from God Almighty comes in them. You know, it, it reminds me of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where it says God took it, some dirt and dust from the ground and formed man out of the dust of the ground. And then it says in Genesis 2, 7, God breathed the breath of life in them, and, they be, and, and, and he became a living being. That's us. We're alive because God has breathed his life in us. We are alive not by our power nor by our strength but by his spirit. We have life here on this miserable earth which we live in right now and we have eternal life in that glorious place called heaven that we will all be in one day. Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We have life the life of God breathed in us, not by our strength, not by our might, but by the Spirit, saith the Lord. And panic seized over the world. The joy, all of a sudden, the rejoicing became terror because they heard the loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. John said in chapter 4, when we were first studying the book of Revelation, he heard that voice. He heard it in chapter 1, and he heard it in chapter 4. He said it was like the sound of a trumpet. And it spoke to John saying in chapter 4 verse 1 the same thing. Come up here. And then the two preachers, the witnesses went up into heaven in a cloud. It's reminiscent of the ascension of Elijah. When he was walking and all of a sudden there was a chariot of fire and, and horses of fire and it and all of a sudden Elijah went up in a whirlwind it says into heaven in 2nd Kings chapter 2 and verse 11 here in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 11 of the book of Revelation we have the resurrection of these two where they stood up on their feet and their ascension when the Lord said come up here and they rose into heaven on a cloud and that same promise, that same promise that was given to them because of Jesus Christ, you and I have, we also will rise from the dead one day and we also will ascend into heaven. And that, that is the reason for you and me to rejoice. If there is no other reason, that's it. And so guys, would you please bring the, the, uh, the elements forward? And as we're bringing forward the the, the bread and the wine, I want you to think, I'd like for you to examine yourself, um, kind of just cleanse yourself. If there's any sin, anything that you know that you, you need to confess, anything that you know that someone maybe has against you that maybe you need to repent, and, and maybe even to go to someone and ask forgiveness, that's, that's between you and the Lord but as you think through all of this, when we have communion, I, I want you to walk out of here today just completely cleansed. And I want you to walk out of here knowing that there is a ministry for you. I don't know what it is, but I know this, that God will see you through it and you will finish it. You will not be able to stop it until he is through with you. And no one will be able to stop you. He will allow you to see it through and you will do it not by your own strength nor your own might, but by the Spirit of the Lord, saith the Lord. And so I'm going to be quiet for a while while you kind of contemplate all of this. And 
and uh, we'll pass out communion. We'll have some little bit of background music and, uh, and just examine yourself. Make yourself right with the Lord uh, for this time and, and then we'll, uh, we'll all take communion together. Just hold on to the bread and the wine and um, I want to read you something out of, out of Scripture that I think it will kind of relate to what we're talking about today. Well, we're still passing out the um, elements. I want to uh, read to you a place in Scripture that, that um, it hasn't necessarily anything to do with communion, but it has everything to do with uh, not by our, our, our strength or our might, but by the Spirit of God. Are we able to accomplish whatever it is the Lord has for us? I want you to, I want that to be burned into your heart today. Um, that you would think about how God has something for you and, and, and no one will be able to stop it until he's through with you. Listen to what Paul says. Now Paul's ministry was many. But most of all, he was called to preach. But you can take and put anything in here. But listen to Paul's heart. He says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast. Because he says, I'm under compulsion and, and, and woe is me, he says, if I don't preach it. The same thing can be true, whatever it is that God's called you to do. Hopefully you feel the compulsion. And there's nothing to boast about because it's not by your power, it's not by your strength, it's by by God's Spirit, that it gets done. He says, He says, although I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to them so that I might win all the more. He says, to the Jew, I become as a Jew so that I might win a Jew. He says, to those who are under the law, I put myself under the law, and though I'm not under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. He says, those who are without the law, I'm as if without the law, though I'm not without the law, but so that I might win those who are without the law. He says, to the weak I've become weak, so that I might win the weak. I become, he says, all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. I do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel that I might become a fellow partaker with it. In the next chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the 11th chapter, Jesus Christ gathered together with his disciples and they were having a bite to eat. And he broke some bread and he gave it to his disciples. He gave each one some bread and he said, this is my body. He says, as often as you eat of this, do it in remembrance of me. You see, it wasn't that much later that he was going to give of his life upon the cross, his body, and, and allow himself to be crucified for them. And so he said, listen, whenever you take of this, remember what I have done for you. Let's do that. Shortly thereafter, poured them some wine. And he said, this is a new covenant. This is my blood, which will be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. It wasn't that much later that, after that, that he went to the cross. And when they put his body upon the cross, they also 
drove nails through it and cut his side and he bled. And his blood was shed for our forgiveness, for those of us that trust and believe in him. And so he said to you and me, when often, as often as you drink of this, when you drink of it, do so in remembrance of, of what I've done for you and who I am. When you walk away from here today, walk away with the assurance that your sins have been forgiven. Walk away from here with the assurance that, that he has something special for you and for you alone. And no one, nothing will be able to stop you until he is through with you. Walk away remembering him and the forgiveness of your sin. Dear Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to have communion with one another here in this room and also with you, of course. We remember, Father, all that you are. And there's not a one of us here in this room that wouldn't want to shout out how much we love you and long to hear those words that say, come up here, that we can spend an eternity with you. Thank you, Father, for your kindness and thank you for your, your love to each of us. Make this a very special day, I pray, in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. I love you all more than life itself. I hope to see you next week.